Hey, everybody. Welcome to the EquipCast. My name is Jim Jansen, and I am your host. And I just had a fantastic conversation with Father Kevin Vogel. Father Vogel has been, well, as, as a good priest and a spiritual father, he's been thinking about grief and loss and the experience of pastoral planning. In today's conversation, he walks me through the tasks of mourning for those of us who are experiencing changes as the numbers of priests and the numbers of people and the reassignment of uh, our priests and our people and our parishes. Is, all of that unfolds in the pastoral planning process. Father Kevin walks through uh, the tasks of mourning. How do we grieve well? Uh, he talks to us about what the church in Africa can teach us and talks about the book of Lamentations, a divinely inspired text where God's people process through the pain of losing their church. Really cool stuff. I uh, highly recommend it for anybody who is or knows someone uh, who's uh, being affected by pastoral planning and the journey of faith. You're going to love today's conversation. Take a listen. Welcome to the EquipCast for the Archdiocese of Omaha. Designed to help leaders to transform their cultures, to embody the pastoral vision, to be one church, encountering Jesus, equipping disciples, and living mercy. Father Kevin Vogel, thank you for being here. Thanks for joining us on the EquipCast. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Jim? I am great. I am great. So normally we don't give a shout out, but I just have to, we were talking before we hit record, uh, right? Some of my family uh, is is up up there where you are. Tell everybody where you're at. Yes. Starting in July, I became the administrator of St. Jane Francis de Chantal in Randolph, St. Mary of the Seven Dolores in Osmond, and St. Joseph in Pierce. Yeah. For all of you in St. Louis who are listening, that's in the northeast corner of Nebraska. Very small towns where my ancestors come from. So very, very fun. Been in several of those churches several times as a kid. Okay, so Father, today we're going to talk. You have a YouTube channel and you're a priest, uh, been a pastor, administrator, and so you, you share, get an opportunity to share. And there's some particular challenges that many of the people in through the entire archdiocese, but I think in, in rural Nebraska, have experienced some of the challenge called pastoral planning. We'll talk about what that is, but you know, we always like to, before we dive into that, that conversation, give people just a little bit of your story. Like, who are you? When did you first encounter Jesus? Who is Father Kevin Vogel? <laughs> um, beloved son of the father, that would summarize yeah. Oh, that's that. good. Yeah, that makes But um, I grew up on a farm just west of Howells, Nebraska, another small country town. So very comfortable being out here in the rural area. Yeah, um, It's unique because it has two Catholic churches in it. What's the size of the town for, for the non-Nebraska listeners? Oh, it's under 600 now, people. So. Yeah. So yeah, two Catholic churches because one was German and one was Czech, so you couldn't mix religion. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Um, or so sausage, or, yeah, yeah, very Catholic. Um, so I went to Catholic grade school there, public high school. They didn't have a, a Catholic high school. I was more interested in science growing up and how the world worked. So I decided to study physics. Went to the University of Nebraska at Kearney. Um, but while I was there, I was kind of introduced more to. I had a bunch of friends that were 
non-Catholic Christians. So especially evangelical friends. Yeah. And uh, they were very, they were very much on fire for their faith. And it kind of challenged me in my own faith. And, you know, they'd quote the Bible and things like that. And I'd be like, well, I don't know the Bible all that well. So I started reading it more and delving into apologetics kind of stuff. And uh, it began as more like an intellectual endeavor. But, you know, once once you begin to investigate more, God's not going to let you go. He's, yeah. he, he wants your whole heart. So that that be, kind of began the the divine invasion as he's going to take over my life. So I started going to adoration, fell in love with Jesus there in the Eucharist. And it was really there that I started asking him, you know, what do you want me to do? Yeah. I was studying physics and I was enjoying parts of it, but other parts I wasn't sure about. So to shorten the story, <laughs> through my time there in college, um, I had this question arise in my mind that, you know, perhaps God could call me to be a priest. And in my scientific mind, if you have a question like that, you have to test the hypothesis. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. Wow. Yeah. So my, my working hypothesis was I'm not called to be a priest because there were various things like, how could God want me to do that? Yeah. So then I went to the seminary to, to find out. So I went from, you know, I'm pretty sure God wouldn't want me to be a priest through my time in the seminary to, I can't see myself uh, doing anything else. Yeah. Wow. The seminary experiment. But, you know, it's a successful experiment when you clearly disprove your hypothesis. Yes. Yes. I, I'm seeking to <laughs> prove something else. <laughs> yeah, thoroughly. And how long have you been been ordained now? Uh, 11 years. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to say thoroughly disproved hypothesis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In fact, it's kind of neat. The, this past weekend, I was traveling and did a wedding for a cousin of mine who actually was one of my servers at my first mass. Wow. That's awesome. Okay, so let's let's dive into our, our conversation here. This is, but I feel the need for some disclaimers, right? So as we talk about pastoral planning, and I'll take a shot at the definition here, Father, then you you clean it up. But you know, pastoral planning is just right, it's the planning that goes on where the church as a wider community, usually under a bishop, can say, how can we best fulfill the mission entrusted to us? and care for the souls entrusted to us, which often begins with key resources like parishes and priests and the number of mass going Catholics, but really is about the salvation of all the souls in a given area. And that sometimes means we need to build a new church here. And sometimes it means, oh gosh, the people have moved and we need to stop saying mass in this location. But it's just a planning of how will we allocate the resources we have, material, personal, spiritual, how are we going to allocate those resources to best fulfill the mission the Lord has entrusted to us? How was that? Do you want to yeah. fix anything there? Yeah, that, that's very good. What, one thing I also mentioned too, sometimes people is that, you know, this will entail kind of practical structural changes, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. but it's for the purpose of interior spiritual conversion, right? It's, oh, say more about that. I love that. Yeah, because, I mean, this whole process, like you're saying, salvation of souls, in order for our souls to be saved by Jesus Christ, we have to be conformed to him. We have to go through conversion. We have to be transformed and changed. So we have to be pastored, led a certain direction. Yeah. And so we're planning for a future that's supposed to pastor us to heaven. Yeah, that's awesome. But you're hinting, it's not just about the conversion isn't just like conversion for all those, you know, like 
non-church, non-Catholic souls, whatever. It's like, this is conversion for us. Those of us who would say Jesus is Lord and just yeah. don't always act like it. Say a little mm-hmm. bit more about that. Cause I think that, you know, the church uses the term pastoral conversion, which I think can be a little bit of an enigma to people like, what do you mean? I'm already a Christian. Yeah. There's just certain things that we, I mean, there's always things we cling to. Like yeah. for, I mean, with regard to our parishes, we cling to the ways that things have been done in the past. Mm-hmm. There's this kind of attitude sometimes that we don't even realize that we're of self-preservation. We have only one vision of the way that things can be the, for the future, the way that we've always experienced it. And it doesn't necessarily have to end that way. And that's, I think, you know, with like, you know, the big goal for us to become missional communities is that kind of conversion of the way that we see ourselves, you know, that because yeah. most of us, we're, we're kind of used to experiencing church as, you know, we come together and we celebrate mass and we have our various parish dinners, et cetera. Right. <laughs> and really to go through a conversion and be like, well, no, we have to go out. We have to go find people and be able to be more comfortable in finding those occasions of, of how to talk about Jesus and to bring people back. I mean, when at the end of mass, we're sent forth to go do this. Yes. But, but I mean, I think you're getting to, there's a couple of things that make pastoral planning hard. One is oftentimes there's been a demographic shift or a change, you know, mechanized farming, whatever, but there's been things that make it so that the things that we are clinging to can no longer be sustained. And then deeper than that, the things that we didn't even recognize that were really always a part of our calling, we need to begin to do either anew or with a a different approach, a different methodology. Okay. So a couple of disclaimers. Number one, right. Pastoral planning is hard. We're not going to try and answer any specific questions for specific parishes. And I mean, anybody who knows you and hopefully people who, who know me, like we have no desire to minimize how challenging this can be for communities. And so if we have a little fun here and we laugh, we're not trying to we're not trying to minimize how difficult it is. Really what we're trying to do is we're trying to help show a way through it for people. So Father, just to get us started here, talk about like, what does pastoral planning practically mean for ordinary people in parishes? Yeah, Some of what I was saying is that instead of just doing things the way that we were used to doing or seeing the uh, ourselves as, you know, maybe one parish versus another, but instead seeing us all together on that, that same goal. Mm-hmm. It's not so much important as to which people are at which specific parish or church, but that all are being drawn in and encountering Jesus. So yeah, it is kind of, I mean, it's first an internal change prior to the uh, uh, external change of the, the various structures. Though what people will see most readily are some of those structural changes. Can you give some examples? Like what are some of those structural changes? Yes. I mean, we've already been experiencing them for the past number of years. So for example, you know, there was a point in time in which many parishes each had their own individual priest. Some of the, even the rural parishes even had two priests, you know, now that no longer exists anymore. Now you've got one priest serving multiple parishes. So priests can simply not do the same thing that numerous other priests in the past were, were able to do. Right. Other things too, is just that, the, I mean, people are experiencing that there's not as many people in the pews. And I mean, this has been going on for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Like for example, had a, it's an interesting, the, I had a daily mass the other day in which the daily mass goers were used to sitting in certain places at mass. 
but they all tended to be near the back of the church, you know, which left the entire front of the church completely wide open. You know, perhaps at one point in time, there were people sitting there. Maybe. They're no longer here. <laughs> That's great. It's like, I don't, they, they haven't been here for quite some time. Yeah. Yes. Well, and, and at one point in time, there was a, a Catholic school in Randolph and it's there. This, and so, you know, the school kids would sit in the front. So maybe right. people used to sitting in the back, you know, or it could be just, you know, our own humanity, you know, we being in God's presence can leave a certain sense of awe. So based upon this weekend's readings where, Jesus says, you know, sit in the lower place, but then when the hosts invite you to come forward, then come forward. And so I invited them and then mass this morning, a week later, everyone was up closer to the front. And uh, it was a, it was a, it was a practical difference in the way of experiencing mass, but I think much more life giving when we're all gathered closer around the Eucharist. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's awesome. And you're like, Hey, I'm inviting you. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. So there's a lot of these, again, these practical changes, structural, like, oh, my favorite mass time might go away. In some places, gosh, we may not be able to continue to say Sunday mass, et cetera, et cetera. Those are some of the more dramatic changes. What got us here? I mean, there's a number of factors that came together, but give people kind of a quick overview of what brought us to this point. Yeah, this hasn't happened overnight. It's been trends over a long period of time. Yeah, like decades so, and decades. Yes, yeah. yes. So we can first look to demographics. There's been a population shift out of the rural areas in Nebraska towards urban centers. And the rural parts of Nebraska, we have a lower population than we did in 1890. Yeah. It was kind of interesting. I was at the uh, senior center in Osmond, and they have this photograph of the town from that time in the late in 1800s. 1890. Yeah. Wow. And, and I was like, you know, looking at that photograph, there were more people living in this area at that time than there are now. Yeah. You know, and the people that were there were just, you know, it's hard to fathom that, but it gave something of, a, of an image there. You know, the peak of the rural pop and the rural population was around 1930, and it's been declining since then. Mm -hmm. And there's various different factors. The, the, the marriage rate in the United States and Nebraska has declined now to six marriages per 1,000 people. It's the lowest it's been since they've been recording that statistic. The family wow. size has declined to just 2.5 people per household now. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier about farms. Farms are larger than they were before because of technology change. And therefore, yeah. there, there's also a lot fewer of the farms in the past. So right, yeah. in all my, uh, in my videos that I make, I put forth the graphs so you can actually see the data that we can't show right here. But, mm -hmm. <laughs> but it, it's striking. I mean, there's yes. like... Yeah, like all of the rural counties, save a few that are either along the interstate, have a college, or have significant immigration, all of the others are just dramatically declining. And then, yeah, some of the suburban, you know, Douglas and Sarpy County are dramatically growing. And that's kind of the Nebraska story. Okay, so that's one, demographic trends, you know, just, just changes and shifts in, in population, particularly in the rural area. What else has been a part of this? Um, as I had mentioned earlier, this the priest numbers have changed, right? We have just about 100 active priests serving our diocese. In 10 years or so, we'll be down to just about 80, and that's based upon the retirements. The Wait, can you give those numbers again? Because that's that's significant. Yeah. So do you want specific, exact numbers? <laughs> I mean, close enough. Yeah. A... About 100 priests actively serving the archdiocese right now. In 10 years, be down. 20 to 25 priests. Yeah. Which, um, which is a huge, yeah. In 10 years. Yeah. 
it's yeah. pretty pretty significant. That that's based on retirement numbers mm-hmm. and a hopeful assumption of two ordinations per year. Mm-hmm. Once again, I have graphs that I can we can, we can see in my videos that I made that show this this mm-hmm. data here. An interesting thing that people people wonder, you know, well, why has it gone down so much with the number of priests? You know, there's several different things, but one of the things is that the, the high point of the numbers of priests for the Archdiocese of Omaha was in about 1970. Mm-hmm. And just like the rest of the United States, the increased priest numbers coincided with the baby boom. Mm-hmm. And then, so the reason why we have this significant de- decline now is because that age is coming to retirement. Yeah, that, that's, re- that's really helpful because I think people, not that there isn't, you know, sometimes referred to, there isn't a vocations crisis, but the vocations crisis is far more universal than just the priesthood. Yeah, you know, it's, marriages it's a- are on decline, baptism on decline. Uh, okay, talk about disengagement from the faith a little bit too, because that's a, again, depending on what part of the globe you're on, I mean, it's a global phenomenon. There's some places where it's, you know the faith is dramatically growing, but uh, here in yeah the United States, North America, it's been a pretty significant factor. Yeah, there's, I mean, people can tell oftentimes just by looking at the pews, especially in the rural areas. In, in the urban areas, they may not be able to tell as much because the area keeps growing and they can't mm-hmm. tell that there's a less percentage of them is not attending mass. But but that is still true. So for every new Catholic adult convert in the United States, there's six people that are leaving. Yeah. Fewer and fewer people identify themselves with any kind of religion, especially true under young adults. The nuns yeah, yeah. who don't have any kind of connection to the faith is more and more. You know, we, and, we try when to you say that. nuns, you mean N O N E, right? Like not not yes, little women. As in, yeah, I don't. I wasn't raised in any kind of faith, so therefore I don't. I don't identify to anything. Yeah. So these things come together. Right. I mean, like, right. The, the demographic trends, the, the priest numbers and the disengagement, they end up being kind of a perfect storm. Yeah. Especially in the rural areas where you see all those at the same time. Yeah. OK, so if we can just like take this where I mean, maybe not where not where people want to go, actually, where people don't want to go. But I mean, just as part of this planning process, I would say this is in a good way. The Archbishop Lucas took a risk. So like, we're going to do this together, but I, we're going to do this process of planning, kind of facing some of these trends and these challenges together. So local pastors and local teams of lay leaders, again, along with the Archbishop and some of his, you know, some of the staff that work for him, we're going to work together to develop a plan to be able to respond uh, so that we can really fulfill our mission to, to share, share the faith here. Part of that planning process is there's some kind of guidelines, parameters. One of those is there's a limit to the number of masses and the number of locations that a priest can say a mass. And the very practical outworking means there's going to be some parishes where we're going to have to stop saying Sunday mass. Can you just like talk a little bit about like why that's necessary and some of the interlogic behind that? Because I think that's, that's just... If we're honest, that's where a lot of people are like, what? Like really struggle. Yeah. Well, I mean, just looking at the parameters, first off, I mean, it does, yeah, as you said, it limits the number of masses that a priest can say. And uh, part of the reason is, is because just so that, you know, priests can flourish more, mm-hmm. that the distances that priests are tra- traveling to be able to say masses at numerous parishes, I mean, they're basically spending their whole Sunday 
doing mass, immediately leave, go to the next one. We don't ever get to spend time with our people. Right. Now, especially yeah. in parishes where, you know, the, the culture has been, you know, the experience of parish is Sunday and that's it. Mm -hmm. sometimes for many people. So if the priest can't be around there, he just says mass as quickly as he can and then go to the next one. I mean, it takes a lot of energy to uh, say a mass well. And the more the, the more times we ask the priest to do it, the more energy it takes. And the greater the temptation can be just to simply, you know, do it to get it over with. Kind of go than, through the motions. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Because I don't think, you know, like, I mean, having not, I can't imagine if I had to go to mass, three times in a day. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll be honest, sometimes I struggle to pay attention and to get my heart and mind to where they're supposed to be just doing one mass, mass a day to say nothing of like having to do multiple masses a day. And not only, not only attending mass, but to be fully participating, you know, right. and even, to, to even lead leading it. the mass. Yeah. I mean, I suppose you could go to multiple masses and it would be easier if you're not full conscious and actively participating, you know, if you're unconsciously yeah. participating. So yeah, I was just, you're just, you're just faking it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So there's this kind of restriction on, on masses. Could we just get priests from elsewhere, like Africa or like here in Nebraska, people are like, what about Lincoln? What if, like, could we just get priests from elsewhere? Yeah. So could we get people from other places like Africa? Well, interesting thing about Africa is um, Africa is one of the places that's really growing in the number yeah. of Catholics. So if we look at like the av the number of Catholics per priest worldwide, it's around mm -hmm. 3000 Catholics per priest worldwide. The that's United the ratio. States, that's the ratio. United States average is 1700 and Omaha is a thousand. Wow. Now, we used, so we used so we, there are far fewer. So there are far fewer Catholics per priest. Per priest. Yeah. Than, than most other places around the world. Yeah. But it, it seems so so different because it used to be like 400 Catholics per priest here in Omaha, like in 1950. Wow. Okay. But now it's like a thousand. In Africa, let's just take the example of Nigeria. Incredibly grow growing church there. Yeah. Super vibrant. Yeah. 4,500 Catholics per priest there. Um, really, that's where we find the reverse missionary phenomenon in which clergy now from Africa and Asia are now coming over to here where previously you know we had sent missionaries there yeah. in previous centuries but because it's growing so much and the thing is is that they they have many fewer priests per catholic they're ordaining more priests than we are but they have so many catholics per those priests because the faith is incredibly growing there yeah that's you so that there's a uh i mean this isn't i don't want to say that, but they're like there's a poverty of sorts, like their ratio, I mean, the number of people that one priest has to care for in Nigeria is already so much higher than ours. And we're yeah. like, hey, send them over here because mm -hmm. my convenient mass time is in jeopardy. Yeah. You know, we, because we haven't raised our own priests, we want to be able to take the priests from other communities. But we don't realize is that, well, there's many, many more people for that priest there than there is here. Yeah. You know, it's just That's, that we've gotten the way that we do church is very different from what we find in other places. I mean, many of these churches, thriving, growing parishes, I'm thinking in, in Africa now, they're thriving parishes, they're growing parishes, they're producing vocations, they're evangelizing and they're growing. They don't necessarily have a daily mass 
And some don't even have a Sunday mass. Yeah. But it's a fascinating, I wish we had a, like, that's like homework for readers anybody, or listeners here. Anybody have like a, you know, a foreign missionary priest, they're bearing the fruits of what a community of faith should bear, but they're doing church often very differently than we are. I mean, they, they don't have daily mass, sometimes even weekly mass, and, and yet they're producing vocations. They're, they're growing, they're evangelizing their peers and neighbors. Sometimes, right, in particularly, I'm thinking like Africa and Asia, whether it be communist or Islamic, neighbors that actually hate them. You know, I mean, our neighbors might be ambivalent and they might be cheering for the wrong football team, but usually our neighbors don't hate us. Usually they don't, you know, regard us as infidels and want to kill us. Yeah. And yet these folks are evangelizing their neighbors. Yeah. And, you know, these kinds of, the kind of questions like, you know, can't, can we get a priest from other countries? What can't the retired priests come back out of retirement? Can't we get priests from other dioceses? Those kind of questions are all, they're, they're proposing solutions where someone else has to change so that we don't have to. Wow. Yeah. Father, if you had to sum it up in kind of a sentence, what do you feel like the change the Lord is calling us to? I mean, there's circumstances here, right, that are that are like kind of beyond our, but, the, but deeper than the circumstances, how would you summarize the Lord's call? Yeah. So, I mean, especially put it in the context of, you know, the questions that answer, you know, vocation crisis of the priesthood. Mm-hmm. You kind of alerted to earlier that it, it starts earlier than that with the baptismal vocation crisis. Mm-hmm. And the the conversion that we're called to is that growth in sacrificial love, mm-hmm. where we're not focused upon my own personal needs, my own comfort, but we're self-giving. We take up the cross and follow him. <laughs> mm-hmm. That it's not so focused on myself. I mean, because that's that's kind of like, you know, why are people not hearing the call for marriage? Why are people not hearing the call to priesthood? Well, both of those are a, a kind of spousal kind of love. Oh and yeah, putting the other in front, and so it's it's a similar kind of spousal call to love, and so young men are not saying yes to either. Yeah. Oh, amen. <laughs> Which is another reason why married priests aren't going to work either, just from a pragmatic standpoint, because I mean they're not choosing to get married, and they're also not choosing to become priests. So just because you tell them you can do both at the same time, they're not suddenly <laughs> going to do them. <laughs> that's that's fantastic. That's really. I mean, that's really. That's sad. Sorry, that's not fantastic. But it's like, that's a helpful, people are like, well, how come we just let priests get married? It's like, well, these guys aren't choosing to get married and they're not choosing to be priests. So telling me you can do both doesn't yeah. increase it's, the odds. It's another example of why doesn't the church change so that I don't have to change my ways, so that I don't have yeah. to drive a few extra miles to go to mass or because so that I don't actually have to go through conversion in my own life to cut out certain things that have gotten in the way of, of my being able to follow the Lord. Yeah. So father, if I can pivot our conversation a little bit here, if we're honest, these, and you alluded, you said, well, you didn't allude to it. You just said it really clearly. Yeah. These are decades long trends. These been, many of these things have been happening for a long time. We have, avoided our own change as long as we possibly could. Yeah. And I would say to our shame, I'll say this. I don't think, I don't know if, I don't think you would necessarily say it, but in many ways we, we've, we've burned out uh, some of our priests and overworked them just so we didn't have to change. 
so yeah. we could stay comfortable and have our favorite mass time and keep doing things the way we we wanted to do it. Now, change is unavoidable. The change is coming, whether we like it or not. If we're honest, oftentimes we're not going to like it. That sets us up for a kind of like a grieving circumstance, which again, offers me some hope. Catholics know how to grieve, right? We know how to do this. You've done a little bit of reflection. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you see the dynamics of grieving being at play in pastoral planning? Yeah. Um, this is something that, uh, you know, as we're going through this, you know, all, all the practical, structural, the reasons why we have to go through the change, you know, that when, when I have to go through change, I really appreciate the reasons why. But mm. as I've gone through my priesthood, I've also recognized being able to address what's going on within us, right? Not just intellectually, mm-hmm. but, you know, our whole self. And, and I've had to grow in this myself because I, I tend to be very intellectual type person. Yeah. You know, studied physics, the, right? The physicist, <laughs> yeah, never totally went away. Yeah. There's there's not a lot of physics of emotions. No. <laughs> yeah. But but it, it's it's a really important part of our, our life to recognize this. So so grief and mourning loss, it doesn't just apply to the loss of a loved one when they die, but also to other kinds of losses in our life. And my first opportunity to really reflect upon this personally was when I was in the seminary. And mm. it was suggested that in order for me to fully accept a celibate vocation to the priesthood, it would be very healthy to grieve the loss of the possibility of marriage, mm. to grieve, to mourn the fact that I would never have a spouse, I would never have my own biological children. Wow. Rather than just avoid it, yeah, you were encouraged to say, hey, there's something beautiful here, and you're giving that up, and it's okay to grieve the loss. Yeah. Because you're saying no to a good so you can accept another good. Yeah. Wow. And and so that was that was an incredible help for me. It was definitely definitely recommend that for all anyone in the seminary to 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 think through that and to 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 visualize that. You know, and now I've been able to accept the great gift of the priesthood. In fact, the way that I see my priesthood is very much is a spiritual father. So yeah. I can I can grieve the loss of one type of fatherhood so that I can accept the other type of fatherhood. So it may sound a little bit strange about grieving with regard to pastoral planning process, but we, but we will, because there's a loss of things that we, the way that we've always done things to an acceptance of something new. Yeah. But you're, you're hinting, you see that there's something maybe better on the other side. Or like, right, there's a gift on the other side. It's not just, oh, I'm grieving it. And it's like, there's, the Lord has a gift. I mean, if you, if the, if the analogy from your story holds true, what's the gift on the other side of pastoral planning? Yeah. Well, it's the term I think we've been using in pastoral planning is, is flourishing yeah. <laughs> for both the parishes and, uh, and the people. But yeah, it's meant to be life-giving. There's been a certain kind of sense of a slow decline or a very mm-hmm. elongated, you know, we've been watching a, a loved one die for a really long time yeah. you know, with, without any hope of them ever getting better. And then so I think sometimes we've, we've resigned ourselves to, well, we know that the population is going down. We know we don't have as many priests. We know that people are not attending mass. Well, we can't do anything about these things. So I guess we'll just cling to what we have for as long as we can, but eventually we'll know it will go away, but mm-hmm. hopefully not in my lifetime. Yeah. And that, and that's a really depressing way to live. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. 
Yeah. No wonder the young people aren't coming. It's like, yeah, that's the unspoken motif of our communities. No, no wonder, as Pope Francis has said, you know, we we come back from church looking like we just been to a funeral, because in a sense we are. It's the funeral yeah. of our parishes. <laughs> yeah. Holy cow. Okay, talk a little bit about that because I think it, like, uh, sorry, I'm clinging onto your funeral of parishes. <laughs> Which is like, I mean, again, we're not trying to in any way be disrespectful, but there is, to the degree that many of our parishes, the way things have been done will change. There may not be Sunday Mass. For for some of our parishes, I mean, it just, it probably means the most natural thing is to merge uh, and, you know, become one with another neighboring parishes. Although, again, back to our African example, there are a whole lot of parishes that could totally flourish without a Sunday Mass. Um, so it isn't necessarily a foregone conclusion, but yeah. let's say we're in a situation where it's like, okay, it just makes sense that our parish needs to be done now. And we need to come and join this other faith community. What's the role that ritual can play in helping us move through that grief and change and loss? Yeah. To kind of lead into that. I kind of want to talk Please, about yeah. a little bit. So there's a couple of different ways in which psychologists sort of will talk about mourning. And the one that I've found the most helpful is the different tasks. So it's, mm. there's like four tasks of mourning. So things mm. that we actively need to do. And it's, so yeah. it's not just, we're not just passive. Like we have to accept this is going to happen to us, but there's, we can choose the way that we react to this. Okay. Know? And so the first task is to accept the reality of the loss, right? Mm. That's opposite of what we've, some of many have kind of been doing is denying, you know, let's just put it off. Let's just not have to think about it, you know, carry on as usual for as long as we can, but we need to first accept the reality of the loss. And that's, you know, to accept. And and so like those like three different realities that we talked about earlier with the declining participation, the demographic change and the priest availability decline, all those intellectually can help us to accept that we need to, you know, when you see the Mm -hmm. graphs and stuff, you're like, yep, it's happening. Uh, we have to do something. We can't just do what we've always done. Yeah. And also to recognize that, okay, we're going to have to make, we're going to have to accept the changes that will occur. Yeah. But that's, that's just an intellectual acceptance. There's also that emotional. Mm-hmm. The second task of mourning is to process the pain of the grief. Yeah. So, I mean, in any case, if you lose someone you love or something that's been a big part of your life, like a parish, you can't go through that without experiencing some kind of level of pain. That's mm-hmm. some kind of emotional reaction to it. And so it really is, I mean, when people go through the morning and, and the, the sometimes pretty strong emotional responses express the great love and care they have for their communities, their parishes. Yeah. Like some of the most common emotional reactions to loss would be anger. Mm-hmm. You know, you're frustrated, but I mean, why do they have to close our parish? Why why can't we do things the way this way? You know, how come that parish gets this and we don't get this? Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of the resentment that can grow within there. You yeah. know, sometimes it can be explosive, sometimes it can be kind of silent and passive aggressive. You know, sometimes we can direct it to, you know, maybe the wrong persons. You know, it's all the archbishop's fault, mm-hmm. it's all the priest's fault, it's all the archdiocesan planning team's fault. The, the neighboring <laughs> parish's fault. <laughs> yes. But you know, it, it's understandable because, I mean, this is something that is so, so important uh, in one's life. Yeah. And it's pain. You're just yeah, processing yeah, I mean, the you're pain. you're experiencing pain. Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the things, you know, when 
you know, when people express it to me, or maybe if you're, if someone who's listening, you know, hears other people talking about that is the first thing is just acknowledge that that's what they're experiencing. You know, I can see you're angry. I see you're upset. You know, your mm-hmm. parish must really mean a lot to you. You know? Yeah. Oh, that's good. You know, and it, you can ask about, you know, what are the things that we're going to miss the most from the past reality? Of course, there might be things that we won't miss either. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. No, but I love that. I mean, I feel like you're coaching us to like, when you run into someone who's mad, remember that they're in pain yeah. and, and remember that they love something that is being lost. Yeah. Even if not everything they think they're losing, they're actually losing. They're not losing Jesus. It can lead us sometime to make irrational statements or, you know, like, I'm not going to donate to my parish if we don't have a mass. Kind of like, well, it's like, well, that's kind of self-fulfilling then that your parish would kind of close. Way to kill it, yeah. It. But it's good. It's better in a sense that they express what's going on because we it's not healthy for us to keep all that in. Mm-hmm. You know? So anger can be one thing. Guilt can come as well. Guilt mm. is a healthy experience, you know, of to feel guilty about things we've actually done wrong and we need to be forgiven for, you know, because it prompts us to seek out forgiveness, especially in reconciliation. Yeah. But sometimes, I mean, and, and healthy guilt is, it's, is, it can be painful, just like physical pain points out that there's something wrong in our body. Guilt is right. supposed to point out there's something wrong in our soul. Right. And to be painful but sometimes in this there might we have to figure out what's the real and what's the false guilt you know someone might feel guilty of about well i didn't pass my faith on well enough to my children and there may be some culpability there and and right that might be partially true but yeah. but man when, when you look at all of the demographics and mechanized you know mechanized farming and kids going off to the cities and you know the general disaffiliation of faith and changes in our culture man, it's probably not all your fault. The parish yeah, is closing. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Another experience of grieving will be anxiety, fear for the future, a feeling of helplessness, like there's nothing yeah. that we can possibly do. I think the uh, the image that's been used in the pastoral planning about putting the plane together while we're still in flight can yeah. make one very anxious. <laughs> yeah, that's what it feels like when you're in the chancery or on one of the planning teams. God bless our pastors and dedicated leaders on the ground there. There's also the anxiety, like for many people, the anxiety in this planning process is, you know, or, or fear is losing the, losing, you know, Sunday mass, you know, and yeah. that, but you also have to think of like for the priest, there's other anxieties that we have. For example, you know, we want to be able to serve our people, but we don't want to fail. And mm. so that's part of my fear is I don't want to be set up for failure in the future. Yeah. Say more about that. What do you mean by, I don't want to be set up for failure? Well, if we set up a kind of situation or we're like, oh, this works for everybody in the parishes, but how, how does this work for the priest? Mm -hmm. Like, is this something that he's going to be excited to get up every day? Or is it slowly over time going to just wear him down until he Mm -hmm. gets a point in which he just can't do it anymore? You know? Yeah unreasonable expectations yeah yeah unreasonable expectations just setting up a like i mean even in my parishes right now where i have three parishes and we have three different parish offices that i'm trying to rotate around and so when i'm at one place i can't be and assist with you know the the needs of the parish and staff that are at the other ones and so you know each week it feels like i kind of run around from one place to the next instead Mm. of you know potentially in the future if we had you know if we set up a situation where there's a centralized office 
where this is where everything is happening and father can put his attention to the whole rather than feeling like he's always pulled in many different directions and at the end of the week feeling like how much did i accomplish <laughs> right yeah which is one of the that's one of the priorities what you know one of like the centralization of that so that we're no longer running our priest racket moving from office to office to office and yeah or yeah. just like you know in the you know things that we did in the past where you know i mentioned earlier that every parish had one maybe even two priests but now you got one or two priests serving, you know, our, our parish group here is going to be seven parishes. So we certainly can't do the same kind of schedule with there's just two of us there than when every, all, when all seven of them had a priest. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So part of this morning, I'm just realizing like we we're talking about the tasks of morning. There's like, okay, we got to accept the loss. We got to process the pain. What else do we have to do as we're, we're in this mourning process. Yeah. So the third task then is to adjust to a world without the deceased. So this is going to be part of that personal conversion for us. So mm. when someone dies, you know, say a loved one, your loved one dies, your world isn't the same. I mean, this is one of the, I think one of the most difficult things is that, you know, everybody comes around the person to help be with them, you know, mm -hmm. for the funeral and everything. But then the day after, everybody goes back to life as normal but it's not the same for that. Except person. for you. Yeah. yeah. But they're always the one who made the coffee in the morning. Yeah. And took out the trash. And so, oh, so yeah. yeah. So yeah, we have to adjust to a world without things being the same as they were with our parishes. And, 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 and there's, they're on different levels. They're external ones. So, you know, things like, you know, you, things external to us. So, you know, maybe it's the way in which you attend mass, right? You mm -hmm. can't attend mass at that same time. Or you can't sit in that pew in that church. <laughs> mm -hmm. So there's some external things. Maybe for parish groups, it's not assuming the priest is going to be doing everything, you know, or mm -hmm. be at every meeting, you know, that or lay parish leaders, lay leaders need to take greater responsibility of taking care of certain needs that the priest can no longer do. Mm -hmm. There's also internal changes. You know, we have to adjust to our sense of self. You know, when someone we love dies, like especially like a spouse, you feel like part of you die. Because mm -hmm. literally, you it has because you became one in marriage. <laughs> yeah. So that the pain of the loss of a spouse is really real because, in a sense, you did partially die with them. Mm -hmm. But there's also a kind of comfort in that because, as spouses, you shared that. Mm -hmm. You know, you're, you even sure. you even shared your spouse's death. You know, you it was not something that they you did alone, but you did together. Wow, that's deep stuff. So that comes from C.S. Lewis. He reflects upon that with who lost his wife. So. But all this stuff is not, I don't come up with on my own. I, yeah, but you're helping us apply it in this circumstance. So can you give, as we get kind of close to closing up here, can you give some examples of what this process, like, like what would it look like for individuals experiencing, let's say the loss of their parish or the loss of Sunday mass at their parish? What does it mean to accept the loss and process the pain and adjust to the world without this parish or this particular, my favorite mass and my favorite building. What does that mean? Like, what would it look like? Yeah. Well, each of these, these, these are tasks. These are active things that we can do, but it doesn't mean that you do one and then the next and then the next and then the next. Sure. Yeah. Not necessarily sequential. Yeah. They're not necessarily sequential, which is why I like the phrasing. The last one, by the way, is uh, to find an enduring connection with the deceased while embarking upon your new life. 
Nice. You know? oh, I love so, that. so even though certain things have changed, like let's say certain parishes don't have mass, it doesn't mean you are not to have some kind of connection. And I think that's going to be the challenge to understand what exactly does that look like? And I don't have all the answers specifically. We can still have to some degree what we've lost, but in a transformed way. Yeah. So part of the acceptance of it is to be informed as to, you know, the details, the, the reasons why we need to do it. I think that can help mm-hmm. us with the emotional acceptance and to process the pain of grief. A lot of it can be just talking about it with one another and, you know, recognizing when someone you're talking to is experiencing that kind of pain of loss, yeah. but also recognizing it within ourselves. Prayer is a really important thing. So to bring it to prayer and talk to the Lord. Um, I recommend I mean, to, to express our emotions in a, in a way that is holy um, using, you know, the expressions of mourning from the scriptures. Yeah. There are uh, numerous psalms of lament. There are uh, also the, the book of Lamentations is an entire book of the people lamenting over the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, right? Mm-hmm. So they lost their church, their temple. They t- yep. <laughs> so they were mourning that loss. So, I mean... If we need words to express what's going on within, because sometimes we don't know exactly how to cry out for uh, for help. Yeah. So, so those are those are some scripture passages that we could go to. Man, I love that. Just Father, I just I love that because oftentimes, like we don't let ourselves voice what we're really feeling. Like I'm just angry. I'm so yeah. afraid. I'm so whatever. We don't let ourselves. And then you read like Lamentations, just as an example. It's like holy cow, they are really letting it go. Yeah. But it's healthy. And that it's, it's in the Bible for a reason as an example and inspiration for us for how to grieve. Yeah. We don't want to, we don't want to just keep it in and pretend like it's not there or let it out, but let it out in a healthy kind of way. That's why in the context of prayer, it can be helpful. And then you had brought up ritual earlier too. This can also help us in accepting and processing the pain. I mean, it's the reason why we have wakes and funerals and burials after a death, because each of those different moments help us to go through the grieving process. It doesn't mean that grieving is by any means going to be complete when we finish those rituals, but it's going to help people begin to move through uh, those moments. And so the same thing with pastoral planning, there'll be moments in which may be natural to incorporate some kind of ritual to make through, to go through some kind of tough transition. Sure. Like a celebration of the last mass, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Celebration of the last mass. We get, when one schedule changes to a new one, you know, if a parish is, is completely, you know, not going to have mass in the future, you know, or, or for example, like one of the things, um, the celebration of certain uh, feast days, you know, could there be special celebrations that will be continued to be held at sure. you know, a certain place if those churches are continued, are going to be, you know, if the buildings are going to continue to be up, kept up in the future. Sure. Enduring, enduring connection, right? Yeah, That'd some kind like... of enduring connection uh, sure. in the future. One of the things that I enjoy doing on my day off is visiting cemeteries. So I get to <laughs> reflect a lot. I on... mean, don't we all, Father? Don't we I, all? I, don't people like to go on my day off? I like to go hang out. With Actually, I do. There's a Jewish <laughs> cemetery by my house, which is very historic and very cool. So I'm teasing you, but like, I actually like to do that too. I mean, they're very peaceful. But like, for example, I'll, you'll go, I'll go to see cemeteries where there used to be churches, you know, and yeah. they'll oftentimes they'll have a plaque, you know, or something that commemorates the church, you know, and the cemetery is still there. And you can recall those people that were part of that community, whereas the current people, they're you know, the, their descendants are now part of, you know, another local community, hopefully, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> um, but those, those are, you know, some kind of enduring connection to the past. 
still remains there, but it would be very interesting. I would like to, to see, you know, to help people put in perspective of how many Catholic churches in our archdiocese, you know, that used to exist, don't exist at this point yet, even anymore. Oh, yeah. Do you know, do you have a read on that? Like how many? I don't know. I don't know how many overall, but just like, so for example, in my area up in the Randolph area, um, down the road in Belden, there was a Catholic church. I had no idea there was one there at one point in time until coming to this area. There was one in Carroll, Nebraska, which is mm -hmm. a little bit south of that. Up in the, kind of in the middle of nowhere between Hardington and Newcastle, there is a little country cemetery with a monument there to St. Patrick's Church at Terra Hill. Um, wow. So there's, so there's at least three Catholic churches within my future seven parish grouping that aren't there anymore. Yeah. Um, and there's others up in the, up in that area as well. So, yeah, I don't know what the total number is, but there, but there have been ones that are no longer communities because, you know, of the, the changing demographics and other reasons. Yeah. That's not an abnormal or an unhealthy thing. Yeah. I mean, well, that's yeah, the yeah. thing too, is like, even, even cemeteries point out that, you know, ones that we love in the past, their earthly life ends. Mm -hmm. you know, we re we remember them. We set up memorials for them in the cemeteries but we can't cling to them being here on earth forever because we have mm -hmm. a greater home. And that's ultimately, you know, mm -hmm. our pastoral planning <laughs> has to be so forward looking that we're not just planning for earth here for the next even five, 10 years, but we're planning for heaven, you know? Yeah. And if, if we're planning on holding on to our parishes the way they are now, but yet we're giving up bringing souls to Jesus in the process, you know, because there's certain amount of energy that have that goes towards the maintaining of certain institutions mm -hmm. that we can't put towards, you know, evangelization yeah. or can't put towards those kinds of things. Cause at the end of the day, it's like, well, I would have liked to have done that one thing, but I had to spend all my time, you know, figuring out bids for the future maintenance of all these buildings or something like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I no longer have the bandwidth for, yeah, for driving you know, around from office to office and yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I love what you talked about. Like our, our pastoral planning timeline actually has to have heaven in mind. What are your, maybe as we close here, what are your hopes and dreams for the future of the church? Particularly we've been talking about like in our rural communities. What what are your hopes? Yeah, the, the uh, we grieve with great hope, as Paul says. Mm -hmm. um, so I look to... Um, you know, the kind of the, we had a few weeks ago, we had the story of Abraham, mm -hmm. our father in faith, who has to leave his home country and move out and this, and his journey of faith, right? So that's yeah. what we're calling this, this our, our journey of faith. And it doesn't mean that he didn't have doubts at different points. Clearly he did when you read the story. <laughs> yes. When you read through there, I mean, he, he got to the promised land, but then he left when famine came. He ended up fathering the child by his, by his maidservant rather than waiting for God's promise of Isaac, you know, but he does work through all those. And each time God calls him to another act of faith, culminating in his willingness to sacrifice even his son, Isaac. So through this pastoral planning process, we're called out of the comfort of our homeland to journey to something new. Yeah. Um, so we're called to that same kind of faith, but our fears and doubts, because we don't know what that land looks like, just like Abraham, I'm sure, you know, doubted leaving his home for this foreign and new place where he had never been. Can anything good come from a situation in yeah. which some parishes might not be able to have a Sunday mass, you know, but 
if Abraham hadn't stepped out in faith, leaving the only thing he knew, then he would never have received everything from that yeah. God wanted to give him in the same way for us. We have a difficult time of seeing where we're going, but we need to step out in faith. So what could that look like? Because all we can see is, well, if you follow the current trend, it doesn't look good. You know, mm -hmm. do we have to resign ourselves to the way that we've always done it? And I say, no, we can desire a better homeland. Yeah. We need an imagination for what's possible, you know, what God could do to renew things. You know, we could create a future where our communities gather and work together, where we have centers of faith for a common Sunday experience. It might mean that people have to travel a little bit farther, but, you know, we could come together for an experience that's much fuller, where liturgy is done most beautifully with an experience of the sacred, an encounter with the living God, you know, where we're not in all of our separate churches and, and things feel. Yeah, empty. everybody's together. It feels like a party and a celebration. Yeah. There, you know, there, there are young people there, like, yeah, the, the, the potential of what could happen. Man, I get it. It's hard because, like, yeah, but we haven't seen that. We haven't experienced that. You know, some people are afraid that some people aren't going to participate. Well, the most committed will, you know, and, mm -hmm. you know, it could be the case in which we come not, we're no longer coming just for the hour to get it over with on Sunday, but we're committed. We're on fire for really making it the Lord's day where maybe there's more opportunities for the formation of our families outside of the mass, you know, where we learn to go and invite our neighbor, where maybe we pick up and help drive those that are older in our communities who can't drive themselves. Yeah, I've thought about that. Like, how cool would it be if there was a ministry of, you know, little minibuses going around, like picking up people and bringing them in? Because I get it. Yeah, sometimes the travel is seems far. I mean, we do that to help people drive 45 minutes to Walmart for groceries. Well, how cool would it be if we actually did that to help people who want get to Mass? The priest part, you know, we can create something where the priest can actually be part of the Sunday community outside of the mass, rather yeah. than having to get up and leave and rush to the next service. <laughs> Father's away. like, can I stay for the picnic, please? <laughs> because yeah, that's that's been true. Is like, oh, Father, you know, we have the parish breakfast. Well, I have to go do the next mass. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I gotta go. And and you know, and having those highly committed members of the parishes seeing each other, talking to each other, supporting each other, and being able to actually go into a world that can get us really down at times, but to be able to go and evangelize rather than feeling isolated and pressure that we have to do it mm -hmm. all on our own, be like, there are other people, you know, that are as excited about the faith as I am. You know, and yeah. then I mean, even though, you know, it might mean a reduction. You know, perhaps some of the people, you know, there's the fear that some people won't end up coming to that situation anymore. The reality is they're not anyway for many mm -hmm. of them. Right. Yeah. That's hard to say, but it's true. I mean, I had one of our parishioners was telling me the story about an extended relation and uh, they were concerned. That's like, well, if we don't have par we don't have mass in this parish, then I won't go. But then their response was then was like, but how often do you go now? <laughs> You know, <laughs> wow. you're, some of you are you really going anyway? <laughs> yeah. Oh man. But but yeah. But so it might mean being a little bit of smaller of a community. But that's how the apostles started, right? That's Jesus's mode of evangelization is no. to start with the small group and then individually, one on one, to committing to the lives of a few people, and slowly it begins to expand until the whole world is evangelized. Yeah. You know, the closest I've gotten to experiencing that really like a group of committed disciples, I should say, I've, I've been blessed to experience it a number of times, but in, in a ordinary parish, it's the Easter liturgies, particularly 
Good Friday and Holy Thursday. Holy Thursday, yeah. there's usually one. Well, there usually there is only there one, one mass yeah. on Holy Thursday. And it's only the most committed who are there because oftentimes there's not there's not a lot of extra room. And man, it's sometimes beautifully, wonderfully startling when people actually say the responses out loud and they're like, oh, wow. And people are singing and it's like, wow, it's like all of my favorite people and we're all here. And like Sunday could feel like that. Yeah, Father, maybe last question here. You know, we call it the equip cast because we want to help equip people. Somebody who's listening now, they know they need to have a conversation. There's some friends that they have, family, people that are, they're struggling with pastoral planning. Maybe they don't know some of the background. Maybe they don't believe some of the background. Maybe they're they're right in that processing the pain. Where would you advise people to begin if they want to start a conversation with a friend or a family member about the pastoral planning circumstances? Yeah. To first kind of, you know, be informed as to the the facts. You know, there's a journeyoffaith.org website there. I, I have a series of videos that I've put together yeah. that explain the various aspects of pastoral planning. So so just being able to reflect more deeply ourselves prepares us more for when we want to engage in conversations with others. Mm. Then when conversations arise and and they don't necessarily you, you don't have to like always bring it up because things just come up on their own, but bring a kind of positive outlook because sometimes we can get we get bogged down in all the negativity. <laughs> right. Different come with some hope. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Come with hope. So acknowledge the, their emotions, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I can see you're upset, you know, that you, your parish must mean a lot to you, you know, or, or, but also to be challenging at certain times, you know, like for example, well, if only the church would let priests get married, you know, then it would solve all the problems. Is that really a solution? Or is it just so that we don't have to make a change to our own lives? You know? Yeah. That's good. Father, would you give your YouTube channel? Because I love the little videos you've been putting together on this. Yeah. The um, Other than giving a, a direct link, the easiest way to find it would be just to go to YouTube and search for Father Kevin Vogel. That should come up right away. I suppose if you want a link, maybe you could put it on the page for the podcast. Yeah, yep. We'll put a link on, on the uh, in the show notes here. And Vogel, V-O-G-E-L. Yes. There's not a lot of Father Kevin Vogel YouTube channels. So- I searched for it. I found it. I'm not a techie. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not a YouTuber. I just, that's the, where I put my. <laughs> yeah. It's just where you put, no, it's good so. stuff. <laughs> and let's give, let's give the journey of faith website. Cause there's a lot of good stuff on there as well. Journeyoffaith.org. Journeyoffaith.org. Oh, thank you. Thank you for being with us. I mean, I think this is like knowing you, you're like, I, I don't think you woke up. You're like, I want to be a YouTuber. <laughs> <laughs> you're no, just like, no. you're like, I just need to share. I need to get this out for the sake of my people for, I mean, right. I think it's, I think it is your fatherly heart for uh, people who you can see are experiencing the pain and didn't necessarily know how to process it. But I think it's been a real gift and thank you for, thanks for the conversation today. You're welcome. All right, everybody, you know, someone who needs to hear this, um, someone who's, you know, struggling with the acceptance and the pain. I encourage you to share this out with a friend and uh, uh, make it the start of a, of a conversation. All right. Thanks, everybody. Mm-hmm.